Good morning. Yes, I'm wearing a t-shirt. That's what you're thinking, so I will just say it. The reason I'm wearing a t-shirt today uh, is because um, today, after nearly two years of planning and prepping and praying, we're officially launching uh, this new vision for our church, Parish Life Vision, um, which we're really, really excited about. It's a different way of doing church. It's thinking about in doing community uh, and mission where you live. It's reconfiguring our whole church life together structurally so that we might learn how to live in close relationship with each other, so that we might help each other follow Jesus, and so that we can actually love the neighbors that we literally and actually live near. So I really hope that either today, maybe you've already been down to the Fellowship Hall, um, either today or next Sunday, you'll make your way down to the Fellowship Hall between 9.30 and 11.30. Um, I was just down there. It's pretty amazing. Um, they've got some huge maps right in the center of the room where you can find where you live and what parish you're a part of. And then you can find uh, your table where you live around the room and where you can meet some leaders, find out what parish group that you can join. Um, it's a really, really fun atmosphere down there, and you can even get a magnet. So, uh, yeah, everybody wants a magnet. So I, I hope that you will do that either today after the service or, or next week. Uh, We are also this month in a new sermon series that we're calling Beginnings, where we are looking at the four great beginnings that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning of creation, the beginning of humanity, the beginning of community, and the beginning of work. These correspond to the four great relationships of our lives, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourself, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with the created order. And so the last two weeks, we've looked at God and self. Today, we turn to look at the beginning of community. What does God intend for our relationship with each other? So let me pray as we read God's word. We do thank you, O God, as we just heard, your mercies are new every morning. We need them every morning. I need them every morning. So we need your mercy now as we go to your word and seek to learn from it. Come, Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear you, open our hearts to desire you, and then open our lives that we might follow you. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I'm going to read uh, first from Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and then 2, 18 through 25. These are the, uh, the same story of the same account. The first is really giving it from the perspective of our relationship with the created order, and the second is explaining it in relationship with our relationship with each other. So two perspectives of the same account. So first, let's read Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they might rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then from Genesis 2, verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Wouldn't that be so fun? 
So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, all the wild animals. But listen, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Family of God, this is the word of the Lord. Bill Simmons is a famous and well-known ESPN commentator and sports writer. And a few years ago, he wrote a huge book on basketball and the history of the NBA. I've not read the book. I'm not really interested in the NBA. Um, I think it's far inferior to professional baseball. Sorry. Uh, But I have friends who have read it and who said it's a pretty phenomenal book, really intelligent book. And one of the things that, that happens in this book is that Bill Simmons essentially discovers a new thing about basketball. This guy who knows everything about basketball makes a discovery about basketball. And it happened when he was interviewing Isaiah Thomas, who was on the Pistons in the 1990s. And he's interviewing Isaiah Thomas, asking him about basketball. And at one point, Isaiah Thomas just makes a throwaway comment. He said, you know, the great secret about basketball is that it's not about basketball. The great secret of basketball is that it's not about basketball. And this just kind of perplexed Bill Simmons. Isaiah Thomas never said what it's really about then. And this got him thinking, well, if it's not about basketball, what is it about? And so he got thinking and he was reflecting and in throughout his research and his interviews. And it suddenly occurred to him, of course, basketball is not really about basketball. Basketball is about relationships. He began to realize that when he actually looked at what happens in the game, that what it comes down to is that it's not about individual ability or prowess or statistics or numbers, that in the end, it's about the relationships between the coach and the players, between the players themselves. It's the friendships on the team. It's the community on the team. That and that, more than anything else, is what correlates to winning championships, that basketball is not about basketball. It's about relationships. So you could take that lesson from Bill Simmons and really apply it to anything. Cooking is not really about cooking. Bowling is not really about bowling. Chess is not really about chess. Economics is really not about economics. Education is really not about education. Politics is not really about politics. All of these things, when you scrape away and go down to the very heart, is that all of life is relationships. And I do not say that as some hallmark platitude. All of life is relationships. I say that because we find it here, right here in Genesis 1 and 2, that in the very beginning, what we see is that God has created all things and has created us to be about relationships. All of life is relationality. So that's what we want to look at today, that great truth, that all of life is relationships. And what the Bible, especially Genesis 1 and 2, says about why we need them, the nature of them, how we do them. So let's look at these few things together today. First, we're going to look at our need for relationships. Why does Genesis 1 and 2 show that we need them so much? Uh, Second, we'll look at the nature of relationships. What are the characteristics of relationships as we see in Genesis 1 and 2? And finally, we'll look at the power, the power that we need to be people in relationship with others. All right? So are you all with me today? All right. So first, the need for relationships. The very first thing that we see in this passage 
is that God made us to need each other. He made us for relationships. If you were here a couple weeks ago, I read to you from Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 is famous because there is this great drumbeat of benediction. It is good. It is good. Benediction means good word. Bene, good, diction, word. And there's this great drumbeat of benediction throughout Genesis 1. God made the land, it was good. God made the waters, it was good. God made the heavens, it was good. God made the lights, it was good. God made the plants, it was good. This drumbeat of benediction. It is good, it is good, it is good. And then suddenly you get to Genesis 2, 18, and you hear this word from God. It is not good. Malediction, bad word. And you remember, this is before the fall. This is before evil and sin has entered into the world. How could anything not be Good. How could Adam be imperfect? How could he be incomplete? Despite the fact that he's perfect at that moment, despite the fact that his relationship with God is perfect, there is something wrong with him. There's something incomplete about him. He is alone. And so God says, okay, let's try out the animals. So he brings all the animals uh, in front of him. Kids, can you imagine that? Can you imagine all the different animals like parading before you, and you get to see if, is one of these going to be like your soulmate, right? And, 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 and they all, you know, aardvarks and antelopes and monkeys and mountain lions and pandas and penguins, you know, they all come parading before Adam. He's like, nope, 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 right? And so what this says to us is that as much of a blessing as animals are to us, I mean, my dog, I love my dog. I most, most of the time. He ate my favorite boot yesterday. Um, even they cannot satisfy this deep need for community. And so, so here we have this funny thing where Adam is alone and he's restless. He's incomplete. And this is not satiated by his relationship with himself. It's not satiated by his relationship with animals. And it's not even made full by his relationship with God. In fact, he is not made whole, God says, until there is this other human who is both like him and unlike him. We are only fully human. We are only who we are meant to be when we are in relationship with others. We need relationships, not because we're deficient or not because something is wrong with us, not because we're needy, but because this is actually very baked into our creational design. You know, most people in history and most cultures of the world, especially African and Asian and South American cultures, do not struggle to understand this. I remember actually being in Africa, and I would say to someone, like, how are you? And they say, oh, me and my family are fine. I'd be like, no, 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 how are you? Me and my family are fine. There's no concept of the self without being in relationship with others. But we who are inheritors of the 17th century enlightenment, which has so exalted the individual as the highest thing above all else, have a very hard time believing this, that to be human actually means to be in relationship. Because we have been told all of our lives that, you know, to be human means to be independent and free thinking and autonomous individual. In fact, the more mature you are, the stronger you are, the less you will need other people, the more you will be alone. But the Bible says no. It tells a different story that to be a person means to be a person in community. And you were made for relationship because you were made like God. And as we've heard the last couple of weeks, God himself is God in relationship. God is not a white bearded man, friends, who has been twiddling his thumb and playing solitaire on his phone for all eternity. God has, has never been alone. God has existed in all eternity 
as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of triune love, giving themselves to one another in beautiful, selfless love. That's the God that made you, and you were made to be like that God. So what this means is this. This deep longing that you have, that all of you have for relationship, uh, to be known, to know others, for intimacy, for love, this is not a deficiency in you. You're not needy. Some people would even tell you, you know, it's just biology. It's just an evolutionary mechanism inside of you for the prolongation of your species. No! You long for relationship because this is the way God made you. You will never be whole. You will never be fully you except in relationship with others. You know at the end of Jerry Maguire uh, when he says, you complete me, right? <laughs> we love that. But, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not just romantic. That's good theology, and good theology is romantic, I think, right? Uh, we, we can say that actually to each other. We can say that in our friendships. We can say that in our, in, in our co- church community. You complete me because it is only in relationality with each other that we are made whole. You will never be you if you are always a me and never a we. You will never be you if you are always a me and never a we. It is only when we are together in community that we are whole. Right. So here's the question. I have a question for you with each of these points. Application question, okay? What might need to change in your life this year for relationships to take the central place in your life that God intends? Do you take this seriously? Do you prioritize, prioritize relationships this highly in your life, only second in importance to your life with God? Do you only turn to people as a last resort? Are relationships for you a means to an end rather than an end in itself? I have been guilty of this, loving people for what they can give me rather than for just who they are. Relationships just come, become a part of my own master plan for self-advancement when I'm in an unhealthy place. So what might change in your life this year if relationships were to take their central place? Let me just think, I want you to be serious about this. What if you elevated people and relationships above all other pursuits in your life? Money, comfort, Success, power, ambition, what would need to change? Might you need to change something in your schedule? Some of you are crazy busy, and you don't have time for people. You don't have time for for anybody. Um, Dare I say it, might some of you need to change your career? Because your career does not facilitate a capacious life where you are free and available to other people. Uh, Might some of you need to move to a different neighborhood to actually be closer to the people that God has called you to live. I'm not telling you to do this. I'm just saying you need to ask God these questions uh, and let him tell you. So this is the need. You will only be fully you when you are a person in community. And this whole parish life that we're doing as a church, it is an effort for us to rethink the way that we do church so that we can elevate relationships over activities and people over programs. Because that's what we were made for. So... That's why we need it. Second, though, the nature of relationships. What are the key attributes or characteristics of relationships that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that we should seek to model? Let me just mention a few uh, I think that we see here. First is relationships that God designed are meant to be committed. Notice uh, chapter 2, verse 23. Adam says this to, to Eve. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my Flesh. This is the first love poetry, right? It's beautiful. But it's more than love poetry. Scholars will tell you that this is a very early form of a vow. Um, Adam is making a promise to Eve. 
It's a covenant. He is binding himself to her through a promise, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So what this says to us is that all good relationships, whether married relationships or friendship or parent-child or mentoring relationships or really any, any relationship worth having, one key ingredient of that relationship is a baseline level of deep commitment, covenant. When it comes to relationships, what holds people together is not chemistry or affection or feelings or complementary personalities, as good as all those things are, but what ultimately can bind and hold people together is a promise. You know, I, I love talking to young couples that I'm preparing for marriage about this. What I often do is I print out the, the traditional vows, which I'm a big fan of, and I put them on a, you know, down on the table, and I say, let's read these together, and I want you to notice something. Have you ever listened to the vows? Next time you're at a wedding, really listen to them. I, Corey, take you, Sarah, to be my wife, and I do promise before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful spouse in plenty and want, in joy and in sorrow and sickness and health as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow. Now, note what I do not say. I do not say, I, Corey, take you, Sarah, because you are a babe, you know, and because... <laughs> And because, you know, man, when I'm with you, you make me all rainbows and sunshine inside. You know, and I just want to, I'm so excited about life with you. No, 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 no. Actually, in those vows, if you notice carefully, there is nothing, not a single word said about how you look, about how you feel, about any commentary on our present circumstances whatsoever. Everything is about who I am promising to be and what I am promising to do at some point in the unknown unpredictable future. That's the basis for a relationship. What could a relationship be without a promise? If a relationship is not based on a committed promise, its only grounding is personal whims, fleeting affections, changing circumstances. But a promise puts a stake into the unknown future and says, whatever comes, whatever you become, whatever I become, I am the one who'll be there. Lewis Smead's Christian psychologist says, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were married, and each of them has been me. <laughs> but he says, the connecting link with that first me on that wedding day and who I am now is the name I took on that first day. I am the one who will be with you. Because life is so unpredictable, because people, relationships are so unpredictable, for any relationship to flourish, it has to be grounded in a commitment. Now, this applies not just to marriage, but really any relationship. Um, any relationship worth anything is grounded in a promise that I'm not going to bail when things get hard. Think about this as you maybe are in a struggle right now in a friendship or something. That I'm not going to bail when things get hard. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to be in this for how you benefit me. I'm not basing this friendship only on the quality of my present affection. Um, you know, unfortunately in our culture because of the sexualization of our culture, we have very few categories for understanding deep, committed relationships other than marriage in sexual relationships. But that has not always been the case throughout history. I mean, read the ancient literature. Read the Iliad. Read the Odyssey. Uh, 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 read about David and Jonathan and their deep, committed affection, friendship. Read the Lord of the Rings, right? Read about Samwise and Frodo and Legolas and Gimli. I mean, there is, there is beauty in deep, committed, affectionate, spiritual friendships that C.S. Lewis said in his book, Four Loves, is the greatest and happiest 
of all loves. In fact, our Lord himself, who was not married but lived his life in covenant friendships, once said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So hear this, single friends. You are not less than because you are married. You are not married. Our Lord himself said that friendship, spiritual friendship, is the greatest of all loves. Married friends, listen, do not belittle those who are not married or so elevate married love that single folks feel deficient. You yourself, if you are married, need deep spiritual friendships in order to flourish. The church is meant to be a cultivator of spiritual friendships as we are bound together through Christ in his own commitment to us. And if you're here next week, three times a year we do this, when our new covenant partners join the church, all of us who are currently covenant partners stand and renew our covenant with each other because we're saying, here's the promise. I'm making to y'all and y'all are making to me. I'm the one who's gonna be there. So commitment. Second though, we see is that these relationships are complementary. We see this, that God has built difference into human relationality right from the beginning. We see verse 27 of chapter 1. First, there's differentiation of genders. Male and female, he created them. Listen, men. Listen, women. God can't be imaged just through one solitary man or one solitary woman. It is only through the differentiation of the genders within complementary relationship that God is fully imaged. Verse 218 has been a controversial verse throughout the history of interpretation. It's often been abused and misused as a a way to defend the subjugation of women. When God says, I must make a helper suitable for him. Friends, do you know that the word helper is the Hebrew word azure, which occurs 19 times in the Old Testament. In 16 of the 19 times, it refers to God. God is our helper. So this does not mean God is not my assistant. God's my helper, which means he is the one who has the resources that I do not have. So when God says, I make a helper suitable for him, he says, I will make one for Adam that has the resources, the power, and the assets that he does not have, and it is only in their complementary natures together that they can fully bear and reflect the image of God. That's beautiful, right? Differentiation. Uh, Second, though, we see not only that, but the differentiation of cultures. Look at chapter 1, verse 28. God tells them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. These are the building blocks of cultural diversity. God designed humanity so that they would spread out over all the earth. And in doing that, that would inevitably mean uh, linguistic diversity, cultural and geographic diversity, ethnic diversity. Just think how differently you would look and have to live and eat if you lived on the plains of Siberia versus the, sorry, the, the, the tundra of Siberia versus the plains of Africa. See, God intends cultural diversity as he distributes his humanity all over the earth. So what we see here is that from very start, male and female, as well as people of different cultures and languages, are made in God's image, and it is only through this diverse, complementary community that we can fully bear the image of God. Are you all following me on this? Do you see that here in this text? So what does that mean? Well, first of all, I just, can I just point out something? If you ever doubt the Bible is not relevant for today, oh my goodness, is it not relevant for today? Just think about the male-female relationship for a second. What has been in the news? You know the, all, the hashtag me too. You know uh, this, this sudden fresh revelation that women are often used and abused to satiate the lusts of men in the workplace. Well, this is not a surprise to women, by the way. This is a fresh revelation to the rest of us, perhaps. But we see right here in the beginning of Genesis that that God 
stands against the degradation and the subjugation of women. That from the very beginning, he sees them as equal and different partners who have unspeakable dignity and equality before God. And only with Adam, in partnership, does God's image fully revealed and, and born to the world. That's beautiful. We also see this in the whole culture race debate right now. There's this growing white nationalist spirit in our land that resists ethnic diversity out of fear or, or sees people of other nations or cultures as inferior to our own. But we see right here that, no, that is a resisting of God's intent for all of creation in the beginning, that we welcome the differences of other cultures and tribes and tongues and languages as helping us to be more fully human, to bear the image of God. So here's the lesson, friends. You need complementary relationships to flourish. The more homogenous your relationships, the more impoverished your life. The more narrow your relationships, the, more, the less you will see and know of the image of God. You need people of different genders. Men, you need women. Women, you need men. And people of different ages. Older folks, you need younger folks. Younger folks, you need older folks. You need people of different racial and cultural backgrounds. Uh, intro- personality to introverts. Hey, I'm one too. I'd rather just sit at home and read a book. But introverts, you need extroverts. <laughs> extroverts, you need the introverts. It is in our differences we find our glory. This is not easy, but it is worth it because this is the way that God made us. So in our parish groups, we've designed the parish groups to be communities across difference. Groups not formed by affinity, common age, common stage, common interest, but common geography so that people of different ages and backgrounds gathered where we live can build community together in our complementarity. So, complimentary. And finally, the last characteristic we see is uncovered. Chapter 225, it says this, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Derek spoke on this briefly last week, so I'll just be brief here. This speaks to the importance of transparency in human relationships, that God intends for good relationships to be transparent, vulnerable, uncovered relationships. I don't know if any of you saw this this week. This was crazy to me. But this week, the UK, the United Kingdom... Is the first government in the world to institute a minister of loneliness. Did you see this? A minister of loneliness. They, the, the UK government deemed that loneliness is such a problem, such a social epidemic in their society, that they actually have created a governmental position, a minister of loneliness, to address the social crisis that it has created in their land. Isn't that crazy? And if you read the article, and there's some sociologists who were talking about how this epidemic got started, and ironically, they said a lot of the spread of loneliness is because of our technology. That as we increase our friends and our connectedness, and we increasingly curate and edit ourselves to project the best versions of ourselves, the best version of my family, the best version of my life, the more connected I am in such ways, the more and more lonely I feel because nobody actually knows who I really am. And we're all exhausted by this, seeking to control what others think about us, managing what you see and don't see about me. I, and I, I struggle with this. I want you to see my polish. I want you to see, you know, the, the great strengths of my personality and character. I don't want you to see the great, terrible weaknesses of my personality, the things my wife sees, the things my kids see, my neuroses, my emotional meltdowns, the way I lose it on my kids. I don't want any of you to see that. 
I'm not going to put that on Instagram. Right? Uh, the careful curation of our image is exhausting, and it's not what God wants for you. He wants to give you relationships that are uncovered, without shame. We can be fully known, seen, accepted as we are. And this is very frightening. It's a very frightening thing to open yourself up to other people in that way. But what is more frightening is not doing it. Because what happens when you don't open yourself to, dis, to uncovered relationships with others is that it makes you subhuman. As C.S. Lewis put it, if you don't want your heart to be broken, don't give it to anyone. And there you will find it becomes unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable, and lost. Don't do that. You were made for more than that. You were built for relationships. You were built to have others know you, see you all the way to the bottom. You were built to know and be known. So here's, here's this application question here. How could you deepen and grow? Think about your relationships. How could you deepen and grow them so that they might be more committed, complementary, and uncovered? What fresh commitment might you need to make in a relationship? How might you expand your relationships so they're more complementary, there's more difference? Uh, what, how might you make a step towards more transparent relationships with people? You know, you're just like, there's a podcast called Terrible, Thanks for Asking. I love that. That's a great way to start. Somebody asks you how you're doing, tell them for real. Terrible. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so the nature of relationships, right? Okay, so we've seen, we've, we've looked at two things together. We first looked at our great need for relationships, that the reason we desperately need relationships is not because we're needy, it's because God made us that way. It's baked right into our design. Second, we've seen um, the nature of relationships, that God intends relationships to be f- with different people, kind of complementary. He intends them to be transparent. He intends them to be committed. One last thing, though. This is just real brief, more like a conclusion. Um, where are we going to get the power for this? This is hard. I would rather just not do this sometimes. I would rather just stay with the people I like, people that are like me, people that are easy. It's so much easier just to come to a Sunday religious meeting on Sunday morning and never actually get involved in real relationships beyond that. It is very easy to avoid real relationships of death because, frankly, they cause pain. So why would we do this and where do we get the power for it? Well, it's no surprise to you, the the punchline is always the gospel. We get get the power through the gospel. In fact, it's remarkable to me that Paul, in Ephesians 5, when he is speaking about marriage, he quotes Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And then he says this amazing thing. I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. He says this beautiful relationship of complementarity, commitment, and vulnerability is a relationship that best and most perfectly mirrors Jesus in his own relationship with his people. That God himself has done this for us. That God made a commitment long ago to be our God and for us to be his people. And that he stopped at nothing to fulfill that covenant to us. Even when we rejected him. Even when we turned away. Even when we seek to do life without him. He has pursued us in love, making himself vulnerable, suffering for us, dying for us, executed for us, rising for us, doing all of this for us so that he can fulfill his promise, I will be your God and you will be my people forever. God himself says to us, I am the one who will be with you. And friends, it is only when the beautiful covenantal love of God is at the center of your life and the center of our community that we will be able to reflect the kind of relationships of love and grace and forgiveness and kindness and generosity and long-suffering and forbearance that 
we see God designed for us in Scripture. The, the more you experience the gospel in your own life, the more power you will have to be a person in relationship. So here's the final question for you that's application, is how could God's covenant love for you in Christ become more central in your life and in your relationships? Let me just give you an example, my own personal example, okay? I am a big people pleaser. I always have been, and it's gotten me in trouble, and it's made it difficult for me to be in relationships. Uh, Because I need people and their praise, it makes me bad at loving them, frankly, Uh, because I'm only loving them for what I get from them, that I need affection. I need praise. I need encouragement, right? And so it makes me dishonest in relationships. It makes me ask too much of people, give too little. Uh, It makes me avoid conflict because I want to avoid people thinking less of me. Basically, my own uh, lack of knowing and experiencing the love of God in Christ makes me bad in relationships. But I found over the years that the more I can experience the love of God in Christ, the more I can root my identity in Jesus, the more I can spend time every day asking him to freshly let me experience his covenant love in the gospel, inviting the Holy Spirit to make his love known in my soul, the more I, the less I need praise of others because I have his. And the more that I can love people, not for what they give to me, but just because I love them. The, the, the more I can face conflict and endure through struggle in relationships because I'm held together by God's love in Christ. The more I can forgive when I'm wronged because I know the deep and everlasting forgiveness of God in Christ for me. So to know the love of God in Christ is to be a person who can be in healthy relationships. So how might you do that? What practices might you institute in your life? What daily practices might you institute to know the covenant love of God for you every single day? So here's what we've learned today, friends. Bill Simmons is right. Basketball is not about basketball. It's about relationships. And that applies to everything. Life is not really probably about the things that you came in today thinking life was really about. It's not about making money. It's not about finding success, being comfortable, making a name for yourself, living in a nice neighborhood, and going to church occasionally. That is not what life is about. Life is about relationships because you were made by a God who is a community of relationships himself. A triune God of love who has covenanted himself to us forever in Christ. And so my appeal to you is, dear friends, dear sister, dear brother, live what you were made for. Live for what you were made for. And guess what? We can do this together. We get to do this together. Let's pray. We do thank you, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that... You made us to be like yourself, that there is no being except in relationship. Um, And yet, Lord, we are bad at this. We're sinners. We're selfish. We'd rather just keep to ourselves. We hurt each other. Oh, God, we need your mercy. We need your help. So we pray that you would revive us again to see that this relationality is what we were made for, that we would prioritize it, and that we would do all that we can to know and receive the love of Christ so that we can extend that love to each other even to our neighbors. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.